Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The reading today is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in, Jesus, that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this moment. We pray that as we come from a diverse background set, as we come from a diversity of experiences, we approach these stories in many different ways. As we even come to the Christmas season, for some of us, it's, uh, it's just a jolly old holiday time with sentimental good feelings and groovy vibes. For others of us, it's this really deeply spiritual experience of reflecting on you coming into this world. For others of us, it's an experience of pain and sorrow and loss. And we're just kind of sick of all the contrived happiness uh, because it seems to just erode at our own experience of this world. Many of us are a mixture of all these experiences and emotions many of them interlocking and overlapping simultaneously. We come before you a beautiful mess. And help us to see right now, as different as we are from each other, we have so much in common. Each of us is created in your image and likeness, a beautiful, beloved child of God. And at the same time, each of us has wandered. We would say, the world out there is not the way it's supposed to be, and the world in our own lives is not the way it's supposed to be. Beautiful and broken, and you see us in all our complexity, and you know us, and your response is to not turn your head and walk away, is to not say, you made your bed, now lie in it. 
It's not to say, yuck, I'm disgusted with you. Your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. That's what we just heard in the scripture. Now help us to unpack it. Furthermore, by the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed. Convince us of your great love for us. Fill us with your grace and send us out to be your very hands and feet wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, before I, I get into my opening story, Todd, I need to tell you, I have a red light on the microphone here. So that usually red means stop. I'm never stopping, never stopping. So I'm going to keep going. But you tell me if we need to replace the batteries or do something like that, and we'll make it happen. And I can switch over to Jordan's microphone also while you do that. But that's not why, um, that's not actually how I wanted to start the sermon. I wanted to start the sermon with a bit of nostalgic reflecting for anybody uh, in my particular age group. Actually, there's, there's two levels to it. And this is one of the things we do around the holiday season. You get around people who have some shared history with you, some shared experience with you. And you say, you remember that time? Do you remember that thing? And so the first topic that we got to was the topic of a restaurant called Sioux Plantation, right? And this is how I know if you know what Sioux Plantation is or not. All of you who know what Sioux Plantation is responded with, oh, <laughs> yeah, moment of silence for Sioux Plantation. If you're watching from the south, it was called Sweet Tomatoes. Sioux Plantation was that magical all-you-can-eat salad buffet where you load up your plate with so many good things, you think you're eating healthy, and then you do the calorie count and realize you should have gone to In-N-Out Burger. But it was an incredible experience. And I was actually, I worked at the first ever soup plantation. It's a San Diego company. The first ever one was the one in Point Loma, right by the sports arena. And I was the youngest crew trainer ever there at that soup plantation. And I had a blast as a 16-year-old working in that restaurant. You'd see everybody as they come in. But not only was there a soup plantation there, there was a blockbuster video right next, almost right next door in the same parking lot. And I was explaining to my three children, 13, 11, and 8, what a blockbuster video was. And here's how I tried it. I said, you know, there used to be this place where every Friday night you would go with your parents and you would see everyone else that you know with their parents and it would be a whole social scene. And you'd wander around the outer edge of this store looking for the movie that you wanted and you'd know it was there because there'd be a little, the, the front cover and then there are videos behind it and you would hope that there was actually a video behind it. And everyone would go in my family and get their top three, and we'd meet in the middle, and then we'd decide what movie or two we were getting for the weekend. But there was always that moment of dread where you get to the movie you wanted to see, and you're just hoping the video's behind, and it wasn't. And if the movie wasn't there, you just didn't watch that movie that night. You had to go choose another movie. My kids were like, what? That's crazy. Now it's, you have every movie on your phone right here, right? And it just reminded me of how far we've come. And I know people a generation ahead of me and then a generation ahead of them can talk about how more and more we wait less and less. We just have no patience for waiting for anything. At Blockbuster, you used to have to wait until next day when they get the movies back. Now we have Amazon Prime where you can get stuff delivered to your house on the same day. Now you can pick up your phone, and on Netflix, you have thousands of movies on your phone, and then you scroll to the next app, whatever it might be, Hulu or Apple TV or whatever it is, and you have thousands more, and then you scroll to the next one, and you have thousands more, and if you're like me, you still feel like there's nothing on TV. We just don't do waiting well, which is where 
the season of Advent actually comes in and gives us the deep soul reflection medicine that we probably wouldn't find on our own. Because there's no get it now button. There's no instant download button. There's no get it faster mode. It actually just says, sit with your longings. See how deep they go. Instead of masking them and filling them, either running away from them or running towards something else that you think will numb all of that out, actually get in touch with your deepest longings. This was one of our Advent reflections this week. If you could follow that longing all the way down to its core and not settle for a cheap imitation or a shortcut, it will actually lead you to the source of the one who created you. And that's a good thing. It's the deeper invitation. It's the deeper journey. And deep down underneath all of it, one of the images that we get is that you and I are waiting for a king who will set all things right. Now, I know as soon as I say that, someone says, look, this is what I hate about organized religion. This is what I can't stand about the church. This picture of Jesus as the great authority figure the father figure, the kingly figure, and we know how people use authority, right? Machiavelli was right. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We have seen kings and warlords and tyrants and presidents and congresspeople and mayors and city council people in authority running on good promises to care for all, and then you get that news update that says they were actually hoarding all the campaign finances for their own personal account or making arrangements that suited their own family members. So we are well aware of the abuse of power, and we say if Jesus is just another king, just another authority figure, then I want nothing to do with it. And we do have to pause and admit, when we start getting into this realm of kingly language, A, we have to watch out because it's not merely uh, a paternal way of doing things. Uh, rather, kings and queens, like this is a way of talking about royalty, not just simply men have access to it and women don't, it's for all. And secondarily, um, Jesus is a different kind of king who comes with power and authority and uses it not to advance his own purposes. This is the scripture reading that Rita just gave us, who came with all power and authority but didn't see it as something to be exploited, but rather in all of that emptied himself out on our behalf. That's a different type of power. That's a different type of king. Jesus is entirely different. He's a king of love. And that's our reflection today, Advent love. So before we get into it, just think for a moment, do, really do a mental checklist here. How do you define love? If someone asked you to write a paragraph on the definition of love, what would you write down? What words come to mind? I wasn't thinking we would say anything out loud, but if you're an extrovert and you want to say something out loud, feel free. Do any thoughts come to mind right now when you think of love? If you're online, go ahead and share as well, just in the comments section. And some of you are like, no, I don't want to share out loud. I'm thinking about it. That's great. Sacrifice, okay. Acceptance. Acceptance. Commitment. Commitment. Acceptance, love. Right. Love is acceptance, sacrifice, commitment. Good. If you turn on any radio station or Spotify playlist, you're going to hear themes of love that would be along the Jerry Maguire line of you complete me. It's that person that... You know, don't live with the one you can live with, live with the one you can't live without. They, they have something that you don't have and they contribute and they complete you. They're the other half of the heart. 
there's often a sense that this is the person I feel the best when I'm around. And all of those are like taking a diamond, like love, a multifaceted diamond, and looking at it from a different angle and letting it shine in its brilliance. But Jesus says, when you step back, here's how I define love. When he says, greater love has nobody than the one who lays down their life for another. The mark of true love is that you actually give so they can receive. You lay yourself down so that they can be lifted up. Otherwise, if it's merely the, the way you feel around them, that's going, to, that's going to put demands on that person they can never fulfill. And you're going to become bitter toward them and they'll become bitter toward you. If it's merely that you two have something that completes each other, that's a great business partnership. And you will go far in life, but you will devolve into being just that, business partners. Love is the magical ingredient, ingredient when you lay down your life for another. That's what the, the Bible's talking about when he says Jesus is a God of love, the king of love. Now, the scripture reader, reading we just heard, actually most theologians and scholars believe was one of the earliest hymns in the Christian church that is circulated around different churches and different cities before it was even written down. This would have been like how we sing the doxology every Sunday. We'll sing that later. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They would have sung this, reminding them at the core of who Jesus is. And I understand that in reading this, he was in the form of God, didn't see that as something to be grasped, emptied himself out, poured himself out, was lifted up and exalted. That has no Christmas bell ring to it. And yet, it's all about the essence of why we celebrate Christmas. And here's what we find. This hymn is the bedrock, the foundation of who Jesus is. Both gloriously powerful and pours himself out in sacrificial, self-giving love. And you fall off the road on either side if you miss one of those. Because if he's only glorious and powerful then you will adopt a spirituality that is merely victorious. Merely expecting that if you believe enough, you pray the right prayer, you do the right things, your life will be charted on an upward progress of growth, your disappointments will diminish, your relationships will get better, you'll have more wealth, you name it and claim it. You've heard all these things. And you'll become embittered very quickly. Because that's one instrument in the symphony, but it's not the whole symphony. He is glorious. On the other hand, if you only see him as the self-sacrificial victim on the cross, you will have a defeatist spirituality that says, yes, the world does run you over. It ran him over too, but gee, at least he's there with you. And there's hope that diminishes in that one. But when you see him together, gloriously powerful, and pours himself out on your behalf, you have a God who both desires to enter into your pain and has the ability and the power to do something about it. This is the king that we celebrate at Christmas. This is why we spend four weeks getting ready to celebrate him. God in the flesh with power and authority and love. So in the time we have, let's break this down and just look at the picture that we get of a God who gives himself to us, a God of love who invites us to receive and a God of love who sends us out to do the same. First, a God of love who gives himself on our own behalf. I often say, you have to look first at the giver of the gift, 
before you can evaluate the value of the gift. So for example, if, you know, if I was to give you a statue and say this is pure gold valued at $10 million, guess what, it's probably not. If Elon Musk was to give you a statue and says, look, this is valued at pure gold, it's $10 million, you can probably bet that it is because he has the resources to give a gift like that. So first, this is big talk. Who's the one that's writing the check? Who's the one that has the resources to even make a claim like this? And here's where we find ourselves. Who is the giver? Verse 6. He was in the form of God, and he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He was in the form of God. This is one way of the Apostle Paul, the early church writer, saying Jesus did not merely appear as God. The Greek word is actually morphe. So it's not form like Jesus wasn't God, but he put on a mask, so sometimes he looked like God. He did great parlor tricks, so people thought he was God. He's saying he was the very substance of God. One in being with the Father. Not just looked like him on the outside, but wasn't really on the inside. Fully God. Equality uh, with God. Not just kind of God, not just like God, not just a demigod. Not even like, a, like God, but lesser God. Like God the Father is big God. Jesus Christ is little God. Holy Spirit is baby God. The, the fancy word for that, the theological word, get ready, because you're going to win at Scrabble this week when you get the family together. Ontological subordination is the word for that. The beings are subordinated. They're ranked. There's no stack ranking in the Trinity. When it looks at, when, when, when we look at Jesus, we see who the Father is. Jesus is fully God, in the form of God. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. You can get a sense of God's beauty by looking at God's creation. You can get a sense of God's beauty by looking at the sunset, saying, whoever thought this up is a genius. You can get a sense of God's power by getting run over by a 15-foot wave in the winter surf set and say, whoever engineered this is powerful. But you don't know God's character. The creation can tell you about God's grandeur and beauty, but it cannot tell you about God's character. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. When you want to know what God thinks about you at your worst moment, look at how Jesus treated other people at their worst moment. That's how he treats you, forgives you, calls you to himself, pursues you, loves you even when you don't love yourself. That's how that God sees you, and we know that through the fullest revelation of God in Jesus. Fully God on one hand. On the other hand, verse 7 He's fully human. Although he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And the grammar there is not saying he ceased to be God and started to be human, or he took off the God costume and put on human flesh to appear to be just a human being. But rather, being God, he also became human. You see, that phrase being found in human likeness is not a word or an image for the similarity of God, but rather it means Jesus became a human being, but not merely a human being. So this is a long way of saying he didn't become 50% God and 50% human. The mystery of the dual nature of Jesus Christ is that he's 100% God and 100% human. 
God and humanity joined together, never to be separated. That's what Christianity calls the incarnation of God. Incarnation, to become flesh. As one theologian said, God became one of us so that we might become one with God. A God who enters into the story. And what does he do with all this godness? What does he do with all this humanity? He gives himself to us. He moves toward us. Even to the point of death on a cross. This is verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. As one theologian said, he doesn't use his power to amass more power, but rather he gives it away. And in the process, he descends into greatness. You see, this is countercultural to everything that we're conditioned to do these days. When we talk about upward mobility, we all just nod our heads and say, yes, that's the way you should live. Get more so you can get more. And then it snowballs, and it does. Richard Rohr wrote a great book on this called Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Second Half of Life. And he says, go ahead, the first half of life is about amassing, about building the container, but you need to get to that second part of life where you give it away. And the most happy, healthy people I've ever met are those who have that breathe in, breathe out, flow of as they grow, the other people around them flourish. They're patterning the life of Jesus. They're patterning God coming toward us with his power and giving it away. And for that, verse 9 through 11, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who gave all to redeem all is given the name above every other name. An intriguing side note here is when it says that he was given the name above every name, Lord, that was one of the titles of the leader of the Roman Empire, Caesar. Caesar was Lord. And this is not the point of the sermon, but we do have to have some categorical understanding as we read through Scripture. We have to read it in a sophisticated way. That Christianity is inherently political. It's not partisan. Christianity is not from the right or from the left. Jesus is not from the right or from the left. He's from above. So he reserves the right to critique all of it. But the early political slogan that every Roman citizen and subordinate was expected to proclaim was, Caesar is Lord. And everyone else would say, yes, of course. Except for Christians. They'd say, Jesus is Lord. We actually pledge allegiance to a different kingdom. Which on one hand made them better citizens of their kingdom. And it made them transcendent and treat others in an entirely different way. Because they lived according, not to the king of the Pax Romana. The king who gives peace at the prospect of violence. But rather, Jesus, the king of love. A different way of living 
altogether. So here's the question. Is your view of Jesus that big? As you think about Christmas and getting ready this week, are you ready to celebrate the coming of that kind of God into this world that comes that close to you, as close as flesh is to fingernails? Thank you. Are you dealing with, in your life with a Jesus you can handle and control? And if you are, you're not dealing with the real thing. As they said of Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's good, but he's not tame. You cannot tame him. Now here's the thing. We all take, I wanted to start with this grand view. Now let's make it very practical. We all want to create some vision of Jesus in our image. And it's a vision that either we can make fun of or we can keep small or we can make cute or it can comfort us or Jesus who likes all the things we like and doesn't like all the things we don't like. And so now we're just emboldened in our own beliefs and challenges and, and challenged in nothing. I love how this is illustrated in the movie Talladega Nights. When they're going around the table, giving you know, Will Ferrell and his buddy are giving their vision of who Jesus is. And they're like, you know, I like to, vi I like to vi envision Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, you know, I like to be formal, but I also like to party. And I like to party. And then the next guy goes, I like to envision Jesus wearing giant eagle wings at a Leonard Skinner concert. And I'm just there, and I'm having the time of my life. And then later when they pray, you know, I'm going to pray, I can pray to whatever version of Jesus I want. I want to pray to baby Jesus. And they're like, he was a man. Dear six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, laying there in your manger, yet still omnipotent. The point is we laugh at that because we make up our own version of who Jesus is. But this tells us who we're actually welcoming into our lives. Because a cute Jesus or a Jesus who agrees with everything you agree with, it will validate all of your current assumptions and patterns and habits and behaviors, it will challenge nothing. It will put you in an echo chamber where growth will be stagnated. It will never comfort you in a time of trial. It will never empower you to be courageous and bold. It will never give you the resources to be resilient no matter what happens in your life or in this world. Only the Jesus that this hymn is describing can do that. That's why we celebrate Christmas. God pursues you with self-giving, self-emptying love. And then invites us to do the same. Because it begins with, in verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So everything we just described is now part of you. Because Christmas tells us that God is not just outside of reality, above the ceiling of the world, shouting down instructions of how to be a better person. But he has actually cut a hole in the ceiling of reality and come down through it. So there's good news. Christmas tells us there's great news that he has come. So on one hand, the hardest thing for you and me to do is to receive him. You can't manufacture it. There's good news because when you have him in your life, you can face anything. I was struck by this Instagram post this week where someone just honestly put out there, in this season of contrived happiness, my heart is breaking. So in the moment of joy, there's substance to it. In the moment of heartbreak, you remember 
God has gone through all of this to break through and get to me. And so he will not leave me or forsake me in this moment. I think this is why to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul said, neither height nor depth nor width nor breadth nor life nor death nor anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And you see it in the way he pours himself out on your behalf. It means when you have huge goals and that nagging inner critic comes and says, why should you even try? Things are so hard right now. Or you regret the past. It means you have a louder, more true voice that comes that you have access to that God's saying, I know you, I love you, and I'm with you. You can dare greatly. You can love boldly. You can give generously and courageously with a new resilience and a new hope. And let me add, all of those things are invitations for you to live into who you were truly created to become. So Christianity is not. You need to do these things so that God would love you and come to you. If that's the way that you're viewing it, you're looking through the telescope the wrong way. Turn it around and see how close he is to you. He loves you like this so you can go and live with courage and boldness and generosity. Great news. But there's also challenging news. Because this is the vision of Jesus that we have. The invitation that we have to follow him is either to follow him with our whole lives or to reject him. The one thing that makes no sense is to consider Jesus and say, I'm mildly interested. I'll get to that when it's more important. Meh. John Stott, the theologian, pointed out, nobody had a moderate reaction to Jesus. Beginning with his birth, King, King Herod, the local regional leader, had all of the firstborn males killed in the region, tried to kill Jesus at his birth. That's a strong reaction. He was threatened by him. And the wise men came from far, giving great gifts and pouring themselves out. That's a great reaction. That's a strong reaction. But nobody had a moderate reaction. Throughout Jesus' life, people either bowed down in worship and followed him, or tried to throw stones at him or throw him off a cliff, eventually crucifying him. But no one just walked away saying, that was kind of an average conversation. I think nothing's going to change. It's as if Jesus is saying, either crown me as king or kill me as a fraud. But don't just be lukewarm toward me. So there's an invitation this Christmas, whether for the first time or for the thousandth, to say, I can trust you with my life because you've given your life for me. And one more thing. Because God has become human, it means God understands you. God does not look at your struggles and your flaws from the outside. Are you lonely? He knows what it's like to be lonely. Have you been betrayed or disappointed or let down by other people? Jesus has been betrayed and disappointed and let down by his best friends. Are you facing a health issue or facing death? He has even faced death. God who knows what it's like to be you. Who can sympathize with you. Who gives you more grace than you give yourself. Which then finally, he sends us out to do the same. 
Because the whole point of what Paul is trying to get us to see in this hymn, to see how he loves you and then go and do likewise. He says, if you have any encouragement in these things, go and love one another in the same way. As he loves you, love the person next to you. Love the difficult person in your sphere of influence. I love when C.S. Lewis writes, it's one thing to say we love humanity, it's quite another thing to love the person who's closest to you. So make that concrete in your life. Let's apply this. What does it look like this week to embody this kind of love? With the understanding, love has to include boundaries if it's a difficult person or if it's a toxic person. If it's a toxic person, maybe you love them from afar. Maybe the first step is just not wishing evil on them. That's a start. What does that next step look like for your life to blossom like a beautiful rose and have the aroma of wherever you go to be this kind of love? To forgive one another as he forgives us. I remember one of the closest relationships in my life had continuously just hurt me and hurt me and hurt me. And I remember saying, how can I forgive this person when I know next time I see them, they'll do the same thing again? And then it dawned on me. That must be how Jesus feels about me every time I confess the ways that I've hurt him. (laughs) Jesus, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. Yes, you will, Matt, but I forgive you anyway. To forgive one another as he forgives us to move toward one another as he moves toward us. And I got to tell you, I need to preach this sermon because I need to hear it too. I found myself the other day walking down 30th Street in a rush. I didn't have time. And I saw a neighbor in need. And I'm like, I'm going to preach this sermon on Sunday. (laughs) I've got to move toward. I have to to inconvenience myself. And then the, the second thing was, I would like to build a life where I have more margins so I could be inconvenienced. Live a spacious life where you could be interrupted to invest your resources, to pour yourself out on behalf of others. I mean, this really is why this church has Know Your Neighbor every month. But we get together all of our neighbors, those who don't have enough food, those who have plenty with live music and fellowship and fun, because we want to live out this kind of love. And then that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. That's what I love about our church, is the things you see, this right here and online, This is the the visible part of the iceberg that's above the waterline. But each of us represents scores of people that we will have the opportunity this week to love. Renew Church is probably ten times bigger than we think it is because you are ministering and caring for people in your sphere that may or may not ever come through these doors. And that's fine. Because we come in to be reminded, to be filled up, and then we're sent out to be the very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. And as we do, the light of Christ shines in our lives and then shines through our lives in a dark and wanting and waiting world, inviting everyone into the joy of Christmas. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would break through with your love in our lives. Convince us that you and all your power and authority didn't see it as something to be exploited, but rather emptied yourself out on our behalf. The reason why that's so hard for us to grasp is because we don't have many models of that kind of leadership. Help us to see that you, truly God and truly human, have come toward us. Help us as those first shepherds and wise men 
Mary and Joseph received you. Help us to receive you into our lives. And then go forth with joy to not only proclaim your love, but to lay down our lives for others as you did for us. The paradox is, as we do that, we ask you to bring us more and more to true life. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.